Ladies and gents, you are here assembled to hear why earth and heaven trembled because of the black and sinister arts of an Irish writer in foreign parts. He sent me a book ten years ago. I read it a hundred times or so, backwards and forwards, down and up, through both the ends of a telescope. Joyce attempted to present a very honest and frank account of everyday life that's one that makes the everyday seem heroic. It's a universe, it, it's something that is a poet. It's there as a great encouragement that out of an individual life and out of an individual imagination, an entire world can be summoned and recreated. In a sense, one can make an analogy with Brian Eno's line about um, the Velvet Underground. They might have only sold a thousand copies, but everyone who bought an, an album of theirs in the 60s started their own band. Rather than criticising Joyce for his insanitary explicitness, he should be given a thunderous round of applause for ending 200 years of unnatural constipation in English fiction. For New Dublin Press, Jonathan Creasy, June 16th, it's Bloomsday. James Joyce's Ulysses was published on the 2nd of February, 1922, on the author's 40th birthday. It stands as one of the great achievements in world literature, yet it suffers from a reputation for being difficult, obscure, or downright unreadable. Over the course of this program, we hope to open up Ulysses and allow the reader a way in. I will leave it to the inimitable Senator David Norris to introduce the big book. Although a continuation, Ulysses is also a deepening, for Joyce himself was developing. In a portrait of the artist, Stephen's mother quietly packing his bags in the background so that he can take his heroic departure, says that she hopes he will learn among strangers what the heart is and what it feels. This is just what happened to Joyce himself. On the 10th of June, 1904, James Joyce was walking along Nassau Street in Dublin when he spotted the striking figure of a young, auburn-haired Galway girl, Nora Barnacle. He accosted her. She stopped to talk to him because she thought he might be a Norwegian sailor on account of his electric blue eyes and the yachting cap and plimsolls he was wearing. But when he spoke, he spoke in the accents of Dublin and she was no longer interested. She satisfied him by consenting to an appointment for the next day, but failed to turn up. Joyce, nothing if not persistent, called round to the small hotel in Lincoln Place where she worked as a chambermaid. This time, she must have been more impressed. For on the 16th of June, 1904, James Joyce and Nora Barnacle first went walking on the Strand out at Irishtown, Ring's End. Within a few months, they had left Dublin, eloping together on the great adventure of their lives. They had no money, there was no formal engagement, and no exchange of either ring or wedding present. 
However, Joyce was later to present Nora Barnacle with what must surely be the most remarkable wedding tribute of this century, that entire day enshrined in literature, a day which is now celebrated worldwide by those who have and have not read Ulysses as Bloomsday, but which is also, in a real sense, Nora's day. The love of Nora Barnacle and its humanizing effect allowed Joyce to contemplate with equanimity and humor, if not with the godlike detachment of which he speaks in a portrait, the events of his young manhood in Dublin. When one considers contemporary evidence of what the life of the Joyce family actually was like at this period, it is astonishing how Joyce's comic genius could cauterize the tragic events of his family. In a diary entry, written within a few weeks of the day Joyce chose to celebrate in Ulysses, his brother Stanislaus writes, food is good and warmth is good, and this is a good house in which to learn to appreciate both. We go for days on one chance insufficient meal, and that only when I have been stripped of my garments, right down to my boots, so that they may be pawned in order to provide food. There were indeed great difficulties in Joyce's family life in Dublin, and a certain chaos remained characteristic as he moved and worked throughout Europe. But what was the Ireland that Joyce was born into? And what was he able to create out of that context? I asked Irish historian and broadcaster Miles Dungan, and Sam Sloat, professor of English at Trinity College Dublin and one of the world's leading Joyce scholars. First, Miles Dungan. Joyce would have been born into an Ireland that was politically dominated by Charles Stuart Parnell, who at the time of Joyce's birth would actually have been incarcerated in Kilmainham Jail. At that time, the land war would have been at its height and uh, there would have been a number of murders. The countryside would have been in what the British government would have seen as a state of anarchy. Ulysses was obviously written about 1904 but it was written during and after the Great War, during and after the 1916 Rising Two events, which had a cataclysmic effect on Ireland and on Irish history. Uh, it's often forgotten that more than 200,000 Irish men enlisted or fought in the Great War. Some of them were already in the, uh, the British Army and up to uh, 35,000 men died. So it was, uh, it was significant in terms of the Irish population. The 1916 Rising obviously had a very different effect but also a searing impact on Ireland not so much the rising itself which was a, a bit of a, a farce and a fiasco but obviously the executions afterwards Joyce did say uh, while writing Ulysses very famously that um, if Dublin were to be destroyed tomorrow it could be recreated from the pages of my book claim that's not literally true but Joyce made this claim after 1916 after Easter Rising when parts of Dublin really had been destroyed so there is that connection to sort of the Irish events. There is an allusion or a, a direct uh, mention made of Roger Casement in terms of what he was doing, uh, in terms of how he would have been referred to in 1904. But it's also the weight of what happened to him during World War One is also some, is also apparent. Joyce's politics would have probably been close, but not exactly very close to someone like, say, Arthur Griffith. 
that's sort of a, a home rule, uh, an independent Ireland with an independent identity, but not this kind of the nostalgic recreation of a mythologized West of Ireland, the kind of pure Irish that one would have seen in some of the uh, writings of, the, of, of literary revival, or, or the political equivalent of it, an attempt to expurgate English influence completely. Uh, for example, uh, Joyce, when he was still living in Ireland, started learning Irish. Horat Pierce was, was a man who taught him, but Joyce stopped after a few lessons because he, he couldn't abide Pierce's dismissal of English literature. The Joyce did very much love a lot of the of English literature. Joyce writes in English, but never really knew Irish, but I think it's more precise to say that Joyce doesn't write in British English, but he writes in Hiberno-English, and it's not just in terms of the dialects of the characters, it's the narrative voice uses Hiberno-English uh, expressions, spellings, idioms, and so on. And this is, I think, the sort of where the politics of Joyce lie in terms of the hybrid and the mixture and the mongrel. was the German Joycean Friedhelm Raftun who came up with this very nice way of finessing the problem. The Joyce is not an Irish writer, but nor is he a European writer, but Joyce is an ex-Irish writer. The Irish literary revival does provide an important context for understanding Joyce, but it is not the only context in which Joyce could be understood. Fred Hanna's bookshop on Nassau Street ordered five copies of the first edition, presumably for sale, that would be sort of, you know, the kind of a secretive affair, but it was still copies would have been available. The first Bloomsday celebration as such was held in Dublin in 1954. Uh, its organizers included Brian O'Nolan, a.k.a. Flann O'Brien, Patrick Cavanaugh, and um, they, uh, they sort of founded then the James Joyce Society of Dublin. So there was a sort of underground readership, as it were, throughout the 50s and 60s. The first International Joyce Symposium was held in Dublin in 1967. It was almost entirely attended by uh, foreign academics, and the locals looked upon it with some amusement. But then over the years, a kind of sort of um, rapprochement, a, a warming towards Joyce was evidence. What are the literary innovations of the book? What was Joyce doing there that he hadn't done before that perhaps nobody had done before? Well, Joyce boasted while he was writing Ulysses that he set himself the challenge, and I hear I'm quoting from a letter, of writing a book from 18 different points of view and in as many styles, all apparently unknown or undiscovered by my fellow tradesmen. And if anything, in that statement, he's underestimating the number of styles that he is using throughout Ulysses. I think one can sort of see in Joyce's career, he is a writer who didn't really write that many books because he spent so much time on the few he did write that with each new book, he's expanding his repertoire. That he's looked at what he's accomplished before and trying to progress further. And I would say with the, the naturalistic stories of Dubliners, that Joyce really could have continued as a writer in that mode and still earned himself an, a, a reasonably strong reputation, not quite the way it is now, but he could have not necessarily, he didn't need to evolve. I think just as, as a writer, he has a great facility for representing different idiolects, different characters in their own individual and individuating voices. One of the things you see in Ulysses is that uh, the absence of quotation marks to uh, indicate direct speech. It's Joyce trusts his abilities as a writer to distinguish the um, individual characters, and he also trusts his readers to be able to recognize that as well. 
Upon reading the first two chapters of Ulysses, one may be forgiven for thinking, this ain't so bad, where is that notorious difficulty, the contours of the subconscious, etc.? Well, by the book's third episode, Proteus, in which we first hear the workings of Stephen Dedalus's intelligence, many readers give up. For a softer entry into this stunning yet challenging section, listen to a reading from actor Robert Sheehan. Proteus, it begins with Stephen walking along Sandy Mount Strand, and he's thinking about perception. Ineluctable modality of the visible, at least that if no more, thought through my eyes. Signatures of all things I am here to read, sea spawn and sea rack, the nearing tide, that rusty boot, snot green, blue silver, rust, coloured signs, limits of the diaphane, but he adds, in bodies. Then he was aware of them bodies, before of them coloured, how? by knocking his sconce against them, sure. Go easy. Bald he was, and a millionaire. Maestro di color cesano. Limit of the diaphane in. Why in? Diaphane. A diaphane. If you can put your five fingers through it, it is a gate, if not a door. Shut your eyes and see. Stephen closed his eyes to hear his boots crush, crackling rack and shells. You are walking through it, howsomever. I am, a stride at a time. A very short space of time through very short times of space. Five, six, the Nakainander. Exactly. And that is the ineluctable modality of the audible. Open your eyes. No, Jesus! If I fell over a cliff that beetles o'er his base, fell through the Nemanainander, ineluctably. I am getting on nicely in the dark. My ash sword hangs at my side. Tap with it. They do. My two feet in his boots are at the end of his legs. Nebenainander. Sounds solid. Made by the mallet of Los Demiurgos. Am I walking into eternity along Sandy Mount Strand? Crush. Crack. Crick. Crick. Wild sea money. Domini DC Ken Stemma. Won't you come to Sandy Mount, Madeline the Mayor? Rhythm begins, you see. I hear a cataleptic tetrameter of IMs marching. No, a gallop. Deline the Mayor. Open your eyes now. I will. One moment. Has all vanished since? If I open and am forever in the black diaphane, basta! I will see if I can see. See now. There all the time without you, and ever shall be, world without end.
Joyce is presenting all this in a style that's not immediately apprehensible, forcing the reader to slow down and think about what it is they're reading, just as Stephen is slowing down to think about what he is perceiving. So that I think there is a way in which the difficulty of the first few paragraphs matches or corresponds to what is actually being described. You can imagine that Joyce casts a long shadow over subsequent writing in Ireland. For the perspective of a contemporary Irish writer, I sat down with Booker Prize-winning novelist John Banville. You'll hear a faint ticking in the background, the ticking of the many pocket watches Banville keeps on his writing desk. I asked Banville for his take on Joyce's book and his legacy. Oh, I mean, certainly Joyce was ahead of his time. He was an extraordinarily humane humanist. He, having started out as a, a very precious aesthete, he became, largely through Nora Barakot's influence, I'm convinced, he became this, this wonderfully accommodating writer. Uh, nothing in human life disgusted him. He was fascinated by both the highest intellectual reaches of human beings, but also by their their fundamentals. Oh, he was very important to me when I was starting out. I read Dubliners when I was, I don't know, 12, 13. And it was extraordinary for me to discover that he was a writer who wrote about life as I knew it. Uh, these stories weren't Wild West stories or detective stories or schoolboy stories. They were just stories. This was a great revelation to me. Uh, and even though Joyce had been writing about Dublin in the early 1900s, the world that I was growing up in, 50s and 60s in Wexford, wasn't all that much different. And I immediately started to write extraordinarily bad imitations of Joyce's Dubliners, uh, all of which I later threw away, thank God. But it was a way of starting. Uh, I was fascinated by Joyce's extraordinarily clear, clean style. Uh, I had never read this kind of English before. You know, it derives from Newman and from the classical uh, authors that he had read. This is a new kind of writing to me. So he was important as an exemplar. And he remained so. His dedication, his total commitment to his art was uh, a wonderful example for somebody starting out. Well, I had a girlfriend in Liverpool um, whom I'd been in love with for many years, and I used to see her only every summer, and then I made the mistake of going and staying with her in Liverpool, staying with her and her family when I was 17. And uh, I bought my first copy of Ulysses there. You could buy Ulysses in Dublin. It was never officially banned in this country. People just didn't sell it. So I bought my first copy in Liverpool, um, and my love affair with this beautiful girl broke up. And I think those first pages of my original copy of Ulysses are still slightly tear-stained. So it was tied up for me with love and with loss, with sorrow, but with learning about life as well, because there's nothing like uh, a love affair when you're 17 breaking up to teach you all about life. And I have to say, I don't have the kind of adulation for 
Ulysses that most people have. I see it as a glorious disaster. Well, Joyce, you know, was a medievalist, as he said himself. I mean, I can see him in the Prague of Rudolf II, uh, you know, being one of the alchemists in Golden Lane. Uh, he was a kind of alchemist. He was an accumulationist. I always say that Joyce put everything in, Beckett threw everything out. Is it very difficult for the rest of us to know what to do, those who came after? One has to admire Joyce. I mean, you see... Talking about Joyce and talking about Ulysses is difficult because one has to bow down in absolute admiration before the achievement. But that doesn't mean that one cannot have reservations. Irish writers of today are in a peculiar position that we have almost no middle brow, middle ground tradition. We only have these great figures uh, from, you know, Swift and Stern up to Joyce and Beckett. Yeats, all these extraordinary uh, giants standing behind us. It's always hard to work with a giant shadow falling over you. But again, that's, you know, that's a challenge that one has to deal with. And as I say, it's no, one can't blame Joyce for it. It's a remarkable thing about Irish writers of the previous generation or two. None of them, they all went into exile. None of them emigrated. Um, Joyce emigrated. Beckett emigrated. They didn't want, as Joyce says in Finnegan's Wake, he would rather muddle with the hash of Europe's lentils than deal with Ireland's split little pea. That was exactly his feeling. The, the Dublin that he knew was the, the down-at-heel imperial Dublin that it had been under the British Empire. I mean, Dublin was the second city of the British Empire. He had no interest in the Ireland that was achieved after 1922. The Ireland of small shopkeepers and priests and you know, small farmers. That wouldn't have interested him at all. He was cosmopolitan. And the Dublin that he lived in was a cosmopolitan city compared to what it became afterwards. So I stay here because I like the climate. I can't do without the light. The light is so beautiful. But I think of myself as an internal exile.
But what of Leopold Bloom, the character at the center of Joyce's story, considered by many to be the most complete character in all of literature? Bloom is called in Ulysses and very frequently referred to as an everyman. Now, Bloom is not to be understood as an everyman in the sense that every man likes having kidneys for breakfast or has the weird sort of fetishes and peccadilloes that Bloom does. He's uh, not an everyman for the specifics of his personality, but he's an everyman in terms of the specificity through which he is represented by Joyce, that Joyce tries to get at him from all sides. And I think there's something very analogous with the place of Dublin in Ulysses, that Joyce is, in a sense, trying to represent everyday life anywhere. But to do that, to get to this general, he has to do the specific very, very precisely. So in this sense, Dublin is a kind of every city, in a manner that's analogous to Bloom being the every man. Grafton Street Gay with housed awnings lured his senses. Muslim prints, silk, dames and dowagers, jingle of harnesses, hoofed hoods low ringing in the baking causeway. Thick feet that woman has in the white stockings. Hope the rain mucks them up. <laughs> Country bread, shaw bacon. All the beef that the hills are in always gives a woman clumsy feet. Money mm, looks out of plum. He passed, dallying the windows of Brown Thomas, silk mercers, cascades of ribbons, flimsy china silks. A tilted horn poured from its mouth a flood of blood-hued poplin, lustrous blood. After a drink and a snack in Davy Byrne's pub, Bloom looks to the window and thinks of his wife Molly, how things used to be. His thoughts mirror those of Molly's in the famous soliloquy which ends Ulysses. Stuck on the pane, two flies buzzed. Stuck. Glowing wine on his palate lingered, swallowed, crushing in the winepress grapes of Burgundy. Sun's heat it is. Seems to a secret touch telling me memory. Touched his senses, moistened, remembered. Hidden under wild ferns on Houth, below us bay, sleeping sky, no sound, the sky. The bay purple by the lion's head, green by Drumleck, yellow green towards Sutton. Fields of undersea, the lion's faint, browns in grass, buried cities. Pillowed on my coat, she had her hair. Earwigs in the heather scrub, my hand under her nape. You'll toss me the off. The sun shines for you, he said. Oh, wonder. The day we were lying among the rhododendrons on Hoot Head, in the grey tweed suit and his straw hat. The day I got him to propose to me, yes. First, I gave him the bit of seed cake out of my mouth. And it was leap year like now, yes. Sixteen years ago, my God. After that long kiss, I near lost my breath, yes. He said I was the flower of the mountain, yes. So we are all flowers, all a woman's body, yes. 
There was one true thing he said in his life, and the sun shines for you today, yes. That was why I liked him, because I saw he understood or felt what a woman is, and I knew I could always get round him. Cool, soft with ointments, her hand touched me, caressed. Her eyes upon me did not turn away. Ravished over her I lay, full lips, full open, kissed her mouth, yum. Softly she gave me in my mouth, the seed cake warm and chewed. Mawkish pulp in her mouth had mumbled sweet and sour with spittle. Joy, I ate it, joy. Young life, her lips that gave me pouting, soft, warm, sticky, gum jelly lips. Flowers her eyes were, um, take me, willing eyes. And how he kissed me under the Moorish wall, and I thought, well as well him as another. And then I asked him with my eyes to ask again, yes. And then he asked me would I, yes. To say, yes, my mountain flower. And first I put my arms around him, yes, and drew him down to me so he could feel my breasts all perfume, yes. And his heart was going like mad, and yes, I said, yes, I will, yes. Pebbles fell, she lay still. A goat, <laughs> no one. <laughs> High on Ben, Holt, Rhododendrons, a nanny goat, walking sure-footed, <laughs> dropping currants. Screamed under ferns, she laughed, warm-folded. Wildly I lay on her, kissed her eyes, her lips, her stretched neck, beating woman's breast full on her blouse of nuns veiling, <laughs> fat nipples upright. Hot I tongued her, she kissed me. I was kissed all yielding, she tossed my hair, kissed, she kissed me, me, and me now, stuck, the flies buzzed. the last of the major characters of Ulysses is Bloom's wife, Molly, who we don't really see much of throughout Ulysses except the final chapter, which is entirely in her voice as she goes to sleep, but it creates such a strong impression that she is very much um, um, perhaps the strongest character in the book. Earlier in the day, Leopold Bloom has encountered a minor character called Bantam Lyons at the corner of Lincoln Place. He doesn't want to be troubled by Lyons, who's trying to catch a loan of his newspaper in order to read the racing form. And Bloom, in order to get rid of him, says, here, you can have it. I was just going to throw it away. Lyons glances suddenly back at him. Eh? What's that? Oh, you risk it. Risk what? It's only later in the novel that we realize that in fiction as in real life, on the 16th of June, 1904, the Gold Cup race was being run at Ascot, and in this race was a dark horse, 
an outsider called Throwaway, which romped home at odds of 100 to 5, bringing rich rewards to anyone who had the foresight to back it. Lyons imagines that Bloom has inside knowledge and has inadvertently let slip a hot tip for the race. Poor old Bloom, who wouldn't recognize one end of a horse from another, walks innocently into a public house in late afternoon, in which the citizen is presiding over a collection of fellow Dubliners who are very thirsty indeed. So much so, in fact, that they are given to such remarks as, I was blue mouldy for the want of that point. I declare to God, I could hear it hit the pit in me stomach with a click. They are, in fact, waiting for what the sky would drop in the way of a drink. The sky drops Leopold Bloom, who is unaware of his supposed good fortune and breaks all the ethos of the Dublin pubs by not offering to buy his round of drinks. This turns the venom of the denizens of Barney Kiernan's against him and his supposed racial characteristics, and Joyce catches the low speech of Dublin with musical precision as they turn upon him and ritually crucify him for being a Jew, invoking the holy name of Jewish Jesus as they do so. But God is not mocked. And in classic mock epic style, Leopold Bloom is rescued by a deus ex machina from the back of a jaunting car in the final sentence of the section. Oh, be gob, I was just lowered in the heel at the point when I seen the citizen getting up to waddle to the door, puffing and blowing with the dropsy, and he cursing the course of Cromwell on him, bell, buke, and candle in Irish, spitting and spatting out of him, and Joe and little Alf round him like a leprechaun trying to piece of him. Let me alone, says he. And be gob, he got as far as the door and they holding him, and he bawls out of him, three cheers for Israel. Have a sit down on the parliamentary side of your ass for Christ's sake, and don't be making a public exhibition of yourself. Jesus, there's always some bloody clown or other kicking up bloody murder about bloody nothing. God, but it turned the port or sour in your guts, so it would. And all the ragamuffins and sluts of the nation round the door, and Martin telling the jervy to drive ahead, and the citizen bawling, and Alf and Joe at him to wished. And he on his high horse about the Jews, and the loafers calling for a speech, and Jack Power trying to get him to sit down in the car and hold his bloody jaw, and a loafer with a patch over his eyes starts singing, "If the man in the moon was a Jew, Jew, Jew," and a slut shouts out of her, "Hey, Mister, your fly is open, Mister," and says he. <clears throat> Mendelssohn was a Jew, uh, and Karl Marx, uh, and Mercadante, and, and Spinoza, uh, and the Saviour was a Jew, and his father was a Jew. Your God! He had no father, says Martin. That'll do now. Drive ahead. Here's God, says the citizen. Well, uh, he, his, uh, his uncle was a Jew, says he. Your God was a Jew. Christ was a Jew like me. God, the citizen made a plunge back into the shop. By Jesus, says he, I'll brain that bloody Jew man for using the holy name. By Jesus, I'll crucify him, so I will. Give us that biscuit box here. <laughs> You'd never seen the like of it in all your born puff. God, if he got that lottery ticket on the side of his pole, he'd remember the gold cup, so he would. But be gob, the citizen would have been lagged for assault and battery, and Joe for aiding and abetting. 
that Jarvie saved his life by furious thriving as sure as God made Moses. What? Oh, Jesus, he did. And he let a volley of oaths out after him. Did I kill him, says he, or what? And he shouting to the bloody dog, Ephraim, Gary, Ephraim, boy! And the last we saw was a bloody car round in the corner, an old sheep face up all gesticulating, and the bloody mongrel after with his lugs well back for all he was bloody well worth to tear them limb from limb. Hundred to five! Jesus, he took the value of that out of him, I can promise you. When lo, there came about them all a great brightness, and they beheld the chariot wherein he stood ascend to heaven, and they beheld him in the chariot, clothed upon in the glory of the brightness, having raiment as of the sun, fair as the moon, and terrible that for all they durst not look upon him. And there came a voice out of heaven calling, Elijah, Elijah. And he answered with a main cry, Abba, Adonai. And they beheld him, even him, Ben, Bloom, Elijah, amid clouds of angels, ascend to the glory of the brightness at an angle of 45 degrees over Donahue's in Little Green Street like a shot off a shovel. This rather broad episode, however, had been regarded askance by the Dubliners of 1922, particularly those who feared, as many of them did, that they were actually featuring in the book themselves. But the episode that precipitated Ulysses into the American courts was the Nausicaa episode. Why was it so controversial? Well, the short answer to that is that it's got some uh, dirty bits in it. It was serialized in the journal called The Little Review in the United States, and that stopped when uh, the Nausicaa episode appeared, uh, features Bloom masturbating on a beach, ogling um, a young girl. It is loosely based on an incident in the Odyssey where Odysseus is washed ashore on an island, emerging from the brine into the company of the young princess Nausicaa, who is playing on the strand with her handmaidens, while other attendants rattle garments in the tide. Odysseus, being a gentleman, modestly covers his gentle tailor and manages to charm the young princess. In Joyce's version, a romantically inclined Dublin girl of uncertain marital prospects succeeds in catching the eye of Leopold Bloom, and espying his interest, discreetly exposes a bloomered leg so titillating him that he masturbates in homage to her beauty. A parallel act of devotion is simultaneously taking place in the Star of the Sea Church during the men's temperance sodality of the Blessed Virgin Mary. The blend of these two elements creates an antiphonal irony as Leopold Bloom's climax is discreetly rendered as a firework display. No mention being made in Gertie's stream of consciousness of what Kenny Everett would call the naughty bits. The episode is written in what Joyce himself described with a characteristic flourish as a namby-pamby-jammy-marmalady-drawsy style with effects of mariolatry, stewed cockles, masturbation and incense. Listen to how Joyce captures in Nausicaa the sensitive irony of the twilight mood and suggests, without indecency, sexual excitement. The summer evening had begun to fold the world in its mysterious embrace. Far away in the west, the sun was setting, and the last glow of all too fleeting day lingered lovingly on sea and strand, on the proud promontory of dear old Holt, guarding as ever the waters of the bay, on the weed-grown rocks along Sandyman shore, and last, but 
but not least on the quiet church, whence there streamed forty times upon the stillness the voice of prayer to her who is in her pure radiance, a beacon ever to the storm-tossed heart of man, Mary, star of the sea. Queen of angels, queen of patriarchs, queen of lovers of all saints, they prayed, queen of the most holy rosary. And then Father Conroy handed the thurible to Canon O'Hanlon, and he put in the incense and sensed the blessed sacrament, and Sissy Caffrey caught the two twins, and she was itching to give them a ring and good clip on the ear. But she didn't, because she thought he might be watching. But she never made a bigger mistake in all her life. Because Gertie could see, without looking up, that he never took his eyes off of her. And then Canon O'Hanlon handed the thurible back to Father Conroy and knelt down looking up at the Blessed Sacrament and the choir began to sing Tantum Ergo and she just swung her foot in and out in time as the music rose and fell to the Tantum Ergo Sacramentum. Three and eleven she paid for them stockings in Sparrows and George Sijon to choose to note the Monday before Easter, and there wasn't a brack on them. And that was what he was looking at, transparent, and not at her insignificant ones that had neither shape nor form the cheek of her, because he had eyes in his head to see the difference for himself. And Jackie Caffrey shouted, Look, there was another! And she leaned back and the garters were blue to match on account of the transparent and they all saw it and shouted to look, look, there it was and she leaned back ever so far to see the fireworks and something queer was flying about through the air a soft thing to and fro, dark and she saw a long Roman candle going up over the trees up, up and in the tense hush, they were all breathless with excitement as it went higher and higher, and she had to lean back more and more to look up after it, high, high, almost out of sight. And her face was suffused with a divine and entrancing blush from stretching back. She would fain have cried to him chokingly, held out her snowy, slender arms to him to come, to feel his lips laid on her white brow, the cry of a young girl's love, a little strangled cry wrung from her, the cry that has rung through the ages. And then a rocket sprang and bang, shot blind and... Oh, then the Roman candle burst and it was like a sigh of... Oh! And everyone cried, oh, oh, in raptures. And it gushed out of it a stream of rain-gold hair threads. And they shed. And ah, they were all greeny, dewy stars falling with golden. Oh, so lovely. Oh, so soft, sweet. Uh, that obviously didn't uh, sit too well with the New York Society for the Prevention of Vice. So the journal was, um, so publication of Ulysses uh, was stopped in serial form. And this led to the very unusual circumstances of the publication of the first edition, 
where it was published in Paris by an American expatriate who ran a bookshop and so was really an amateur publisher. They used a French printer who didn't speak English. Uh, the, the first edition was a deluxe volume available only through subscription. This actually created uh, another problem for Ulysses in that uh, this model of publication, high quality paper, deluxe format, available by subscription from France, was also a method used to publish high-class pornography. So this actually reinforced the impression that Ulysses was a dirty book. Uh, I just have an interesting quotation from a newspaper called The Sporting Times from uh, late 1922, where they published a review of Ulysses under the title The Scandal of Ulysses. And the author of the piece, uh, who goes by the uh, pseudonym Aramis, begins the article. After a rather boresome perusal of James Joyce's Ulysses, published in Paris for private subscribers, I can now realize one reason, at least, for Puritan America's Society for the, for the Prevention of Vice, and can understand why the Yankee judges fined the publishers of the Little Review $100 for the original publication of a very rancid chapter of Joyce stuff, which appears to have been written by a perverted lunatic who has made a speciality of the literature of the latrine. And it continues on in this fashion for um, quite a few pages. Uh, Joyce pretty much had problems with every, almost every book of his in terms of getting them published. Finnegan's Wake is surprisingly the uh, one exception to this. But Joyce was al almost always able to use the, the controversies around publication to his advantage to gain publicity. And this very much helped with Ulysses. But the scandals surrounding Ulysses outlived even Joyce himself. I spoke to Belfast poet and director of the Oscar Wilde Center for Irish Writing, Gerald Daw. Well, it is the big book. Anybody who has any real interest in literature has to read, and there's few enough of those. I got my first copy. My sister bought it for me uh, as a, a birthday present when I was about 18. And uh, I remember very clearly at the time uh, her saying to me that she was a little bit anxious going into the bookshop to buy it. This was in Belfast in the early 60s. And I, I wasn't quite sure why. It hadn't dawned on me um, that there was the sexual content, in quote, uh, in, in, in the book. Until uh, a friend of mine, Gary Williamson, and I went down to um, Siobhan McKenna's one-woman show. In uh, There was a, a theatre called the Grove Theatre. It was actually a cinema. Uh, on York, in York Road uh, in Belfast and uh, it was a f the, the house was full so that meant there were probably was four or five hundred people maybe even more in this theatre um, and when Siobhan started into the famous Molly Bloom soliloquy all we could hear were these chairs snapping up all over the spot and Gary looked at me and I looked at him and I said what's, what's going on here and this would have been Belfast 1967 or 68. Uh, and the monologue had, even in the f great free 60s, had such power that it uh, um, struck against some of the, sh shall we say, chauvinistic chords of um, the Belfast theatre going community. Uh, we thought we relished it. We thought it was absolutely fascinating. So for me, Joyce was always identified with radical subversiveness and I think that if there's any any one thing that Ulysses strikes home to me is that the imagination is not about the self the imagination is actually about how you recreate 
of the world, the otherness of the world. And then there's just the fun. People, I think, forget about how it's fun to read Ulysses. It, it, that should never be forgotten about, about the novel uh, or the world that it recreates. And then this other, the nightlife of the book. Uh, I mean, it's salacious. It's uh, mind-altering. Uh, and then suddenly you're not in Dublin anymore. You're part of this huge European movement that's actually breaking down the barriers between the day world and the night world. In a way, Bloomsday fits, ironically, into the Joycean uh, worldview because I can see him being mockingly intrigued by it, um, uh, not with any kind of austere uh, snootiness, but absolutely fascinated that the day that he met Nora uh, commemorated in the novel uh, should become a, a universal day of similar goings on so good man James Joyce you know he did the trick there's a line I like a lot in the Wandering Rocks chapter uh, when a character who's writing um, a history of, of the Fitzgeralds is walking across Dublin. And so he's, uh, very, he's uh, Tom Kernan, he's very much immersed within history and he thinks within historical parallels. So his trajectory across the city is described as walking from the Falsal to the Ford of Hurdles, which are two landmarks in Dublin that had long since vanished by 1904, but that's how he perceives the city as is kind of retaining these traces of the past. I kind of think that this is, in a certain way it's Joyce kind of anticipating the Joycean walking tour as you're, you're pointing at a McDonald's and saying that this is where Bloom looked in the shop window. That's so little of Joyce, of, of the, the Dublin of Ulysses um, remains now. And that's you know, not a bad thing. Dublin shouldn't be a museum to um, um, the way in which it was um, canonized in Ulysses. It's an evolving, vibrant city. One can see traces of, and not just Joyce, but other writers who have written on the, about the city. And I think that's what makes this a particularly vibrant city. It's not just any one writer's city. You've been listening to a production of New Dublin Press. I'm Jonathan Creasy. My co-producer is Neil Guerin. Music has been from This Is How We Fly. Thank you to all of our contributors. Find us online at newdublinpress.org. Happy Bloomsday! <laughs>